following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, March 12th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. As you're getting settled, go ahead and grab your Bible. If you need to use the Bible in the pew in front of you, go ahead and, and grab it. Open it up to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. We'll spend the bulk of our time there this morning, but, but we'll have a runway to get there. Um, so make your way to Romans chapter 12. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you, by your mercy and your kindness and the work of your Holy Spirit, would, would do the miracle in these next few moments that only you can do. You'd bring a a stillness to our very busy and, and chaotic hearts. You would enable us to, to hear your voice in your word. We ask this morning you would do that in Jesus' good name. Amen. In the uh, 1930s, uh, the Protestant church in Germany had largely capitulated to the desires and to the vision of Hitler and the Third Reich. And in response, there was a small group of pastors who gathered together and signed a manifesto that had been written largely by a man named Karl Barth, preeminent theologian of the church then, uh, even to this day. And it was a manifesto that called for the formation of a church that bowed its knee to Christ and Christ alone. It would become known as the Confessing Church in Germany. And amongst the the brave signers of that manifesto, and brave they were, was a young pastor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You might be familiar with the name. Um, Bonhoeffer would be asked by the Confessing Church to establish a, a training ground, a, an outpost of the confessing church, training pastors to lead this resistance against the power and the machine of the Third Reich. They were given a little piece of land and a house, a larger house, in an area of Germany that was known as Finkenwald, which is now in modern-day Poland. And Bonhoeffer accepted the opportunity and began to go about the business of living with and doing life with and training pastors in the confessing church. They could have anywhere from six to to 18 guys living together and they established a, a very rigorous, common way of living together. Their days would start with intentional time and Silence and solitude with Jesus, listening to the voice of his spirit, helping to expose the blind spots and the captivities of their own hearts. And they had very intentional time together from there to be honest with one another, confessing what God was showing them about themselves, repenting of their sin, and engaging and helping one another in the process. Bonhoeffer would lead intensive times in the study of God's word. A lot of people don't understand that Bonhoeffer, for all the reputation that he had, he was arguably one of the most brilliant theologians of his day. 
He graduated with his doctorate at 21, and his doctoral dissertation, the same Karl Barth who wrote this manifesto of the Confessing Church, said that his dissertation at 21 was an absolute miracle of God for the church. He spent his days now training pastors to lead this confessing church and training them in the scriptures. They built their life on a vision of what a life looked like apprenticed to Jesus, come what may. A life that was lived in the light of God's kingdom reign, not the reign of Hitler or the Third Reich. And I say all this because it's a story about Bonhoeffer's time there that doesn't get told very often. It's not largely known. Only one of his biographers actually writes about it, but it was fascinating. As this process of training and living was going, and, and if you're familiar with Bonhoeffer, it was out of this project at Finkenwald that his famous books, Life Together and Cost of Discipleship, would be born. One of his friends who had heard him years before preach at a church and, and knew of his reputation and knew of his background began to get a little concerned about what he was hearing about Finkenwald. He was afraid that Bonhoeffer and these pastors were getting a little too spiritual. The quote in the biography is that there was too much spiritualism in Bonhoeffer's life. Bonhoeffer was well-educated, brilliant, genteel in the days of his time and in society. And his friend decided that he would go to Finkenwald to try to bring Bonhoeffer back to his senses. You're just a little too fervent, a little too passionate. And he went to try to talk him back and talk him down. And so he goes and he, and he meets with him. He, he spends a day in the life of the guys together at Finkenwald. And in the afternoon, Bonhoeffer invites his friend to go out and, and take a a rowboat ride with him across the Otter Sound. The Otter Sound was right there at Finkenwald. It's, it's, it's narrow. It's not super long. So they get into this rowboat and they, they row across to the other side. And once they get to the other side, Bonhoeffer doesn't say anything to his friend. He just leads him up this hill at the other side of the sound. And they get to the top of this hill where they can look out over a valley and a huge clearing. And when they look out over the clearing, Bonhoeffer begins to point out to him what, he's, what they're looking at as German planes are landing and taking off on these makeshift runways, as there's an encampment not far out of view for the Hitler youth, where they were training young men in the Third Reich in the ways of the machine and the empire, where soldiers were marching and moving in formation as far as they could see like ants. And while they stood there and, and looked out over that, the, the story goes that Bonhoeffer looked back across the sound to Finkenwald. And he looked at his friend and he pointed back to the house across the sound and he said, this has got to be stronger than that. This has got to be deeper. It's got to be stronger than this. And the story goes, they didn't speak another word. They got back in the boat, rowed across the sound and his friend promptly left Bonhoeffer to his work at Finkenwald. Because there, on that hillside, they were looking at two very distinct visions of life and visions of formation. Bonhoeffer understood what historians would later write about, that Hitler wanted to control the hearts and the souls of his citizens. 
That what was happening there in Germany was as much a religious battle for the heart as it was a political struggle. And Bonhoeffer was convinced that the church must cultivate a deeper and stronger apprentice of Jesus than what Hitler was cultivating towards his Reich, regardless of what it would cost. And Bonhoeffer, along with a number of the pastors that he would train that would live with him there in Finkenwald, would pay the ultimate cost. The thing about Bonhoeffer that this biographer pulls out, just in that story of his life, is that Bonhoeffer understood the power of formation. That formation, and when it comes down to it, is really a human thing. Every single one of us is always becoming someone. There's never a standstill. We're always in the process of becoming. Our hearts, our affections, our desires, our intentions, they're always being shaped. They're always being indexed. They're always being calibrated. They're always being pointed in a direction. And we're always in the process of being formed. Always in the process of becoming. Every day we are being formed by what we saw last week, the patterns of the world. Narratives that offer out a vision or a picture of life, the good life. Maps towards that end. Bonhoeffer understood that that nothing in life was truly neutral at all. All of life was a process of formation. And what he was pursuing by the grace of God was a life of counter-formation. A life of forming and being formed that stood against and stood at odds and pushed back against the forming powers of his world. He understood that even in the church, we we don't come into this life and live this life as blank slates or, or as I saw in my head, like empty slabs of marble that a sculptor like a da Vinci would walk up to and begin to chisel and carve out this beautiful picture. No, we're already chipped, we're already scratched, we're already dented, we're already being shaped and formed and molded by pressures and patterns in this world. And we require the chiseling power of the Holy Spirit to go to work counterforming, reforming, shaping us into the image and likeness of Jesus. We may not be pushing back against the forming powers of the Third Reich, but we are hard-pressed on every side by soul-forming powers, ideologies, pretensions, plausible lies, like we talked about last week, that shape us and are at odds with the kingdom of God. Which means we, as a people, as God's people, have to be a people and a place of counter-formation. Have to be exploring this reality, this forming process of the world in which we live. And we're spending the weeks of the season of Lent thinking about and, and exposing some of these forming, shaping ideologies and pretensions that exert their, their influence and their temptation and their power on our hearts and our affections. Because you and I, as Bonhoeffer understood, we live a life of counter-formation. Unless we find ourselves being taken captive by the lies, the patterns that seek to shape us in a direction that's at odds with God's kingdom vision for our hearts and our lives. 
This is the very thing that the Apostle Paul was appealing to the church in Rome with regards to. If if you've got it open, Romans chapter 12. Paul's broaching the same thing with the church. And we're just going to walk our way through this chapter and zero in a bit on one of these forming ideologies that, that seeks to captivate and capture, really, our hearts and affections. Let's, let's listen to how Paul goes. We're, we're going to read, stop, read, stop. It's kind of the way it's going to be this morning. Verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, family, right, by the mercies of God. Now, I want you to hear something right here. I want you to see that we're picking up in the middle of a letter, Romans chapter 12. Again, there were no chapter and verse numbers when Paul wrote the letter. It was a letter, but it's still in the middle. And this phrase, the mercies of God, is the way that Paul sums up basically everything that he said already in the letter. The mercies of God. God's mercy to sinners through the death and resurrection of Jesus. For the first 11 chapters of this letter, the beginning of this letter, Paul has been unpacking for sinners who are bent on their own way, who are bent on their own desires, who are bent on the building of their own kingdom, how by God's mercy through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you and I can find ourselves justified, forgiven, reconciled to God with the eternal hope of steadfast joy. No, we can live free, no condemnation before us because of Jesus. Because of the mercies of God, Paul tells him in Romans chapter 8, who is there to condemn you? Who's left to stand and condemn you because of the mercies of God in Jesus? Now, chapter 12, therefore, because of these mercies, build your life on these mercies. That's what 12 through 16 at the end of the letter is really getting out. Build your life on these mercies. Sink the roots of your soul and your life deep into the waters of these mercies and and watch what happens. Watch as by the grace of God it begins to flow out. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Right, Paul is saying something very similar to what we've been saying these last several weeks. Your life, your manner of living, the physicality of your life, your body, what you do with your body in its entirety, what you do with it and how you live, it matters to God. Your life, your way of living, what you do with this body, this mind, these words, this capacity to speak and to do, It matters to God. And it's meant to make visible the mercies and the glory of Jesus. It's a living sacrifice. Your life and my life is meant to tell the truth about Jesus and his mercy. So Paul goes on to say in verse 2, do not be conformed. Literally, the word says molded. Do not be pressed into the mold of this world. Paul understood. This is what Bonhoeffer was expressing in his time, that there is a conforming pressure 
an ever-present temptation and power at work 24 hours a day, seven days a week to shape you and press you into the pattern and mold of the world. That's reality. Nothing is neutral. Our world is a formation machine. If you've ever seen those machines at bakeries or stores that take a raw material, literally press them into this thing and spits them out. That's our world. Constantly pressing, trying to shape you and I, our hearts, our souls, our affections into a mold. And I'm just stunned by how much of my life is still shaped and molded by these pressures and temptations. How much my old self aches to be satisfied. Few things push as hard. Few things run as deep in our land. Few ideologies hold as much sway in our contemporary life than that of the ideology of individualism. One writer said, we as Americans in particular, believe in the sacredness of the individual. And he's not talking about the dignity of life that we would talk about. Listen to how he defines it. Anything that would violate your right to think for yourself, judge for yourself, make your own decision, live your life the way you see fit is not only morally wrong, it's sacrilegious. Our highest and noblest aspiration, not only for ourselves, but even for those we care about, for our society and for the world, is closely linked, if not inextricably bound, to our individualism. Individualism is as old as the garden itself. From the moment we believed the lie, whispered into our ears, Man became a self-centered being. Life became about the process of building our own kingdom. Life became about the great project of Project Self. And historically, here's the thing. Most cultures, most societies, they had a manner of living. They had a a, a moral code. They, They had something about their life together that was able to stifle certain selfish expressions of this individualism, right? The group, the family, the tribe, the well-being of the group is what mattered most, right? But now, such individualism and selfishness and the project of building our own kingdom is actually seen not as a vice but a virtue, The authority of self is celebrated in our world today in ways it's never been so freely celebrated before. It's a religious dogma, which is why that sociologist would call it sacrilegious to live against it. This ideology carries out its own vision of the full life, the good life, that's only found in in you being able to live in and experience and express your deepest desires and wants. It's offer on hold to you of salvation is you being able to find what it is 
your heart most deeply craves and desires. It holds fast to a body of truth, a dogma of truth that you define. It's your truth. It's your way, right? You're encouraged to put off every single day anything that gets in the way of you being able to have and live and achieve what it is your heart most desperately wants and thinks it needs. Relationships with other people simply become means to our own individual personal fulfillment. Individualism says that I have the right to live the way I want, how I want, and I have in me everything I need to be who I want to be. Captured in that great poem, Invictus, master of my own fate, unconquerable soul, captain of my own destiny and soul. It's as old as the garden. In our own culture, though, you can watch this rapid trajectory toward the exaltation of the self, the virtue of such selfishness and the project of building our own kingdom back a few generations of great change. I mean, think about it back in the days of Bonhoeffer and the World War II generation. We collectively now know them as what? The greatest generation, right? Selfish and sinful as we are, but yet there was a constraint within the society and the norms of the day that drove them, even in their selfishness, to use their freedoms for the well-being of the family and the society. There are stories, if you go back and read them, of men, even in the days of World War II, weeping at not being able to go and to sacrifice in service for the well-being of their country. Life was seen as a way to, to, to give back to family, to neighbor, to country, that generation gave birth to the next generation, which became known as the generation of me. The generation that began to pursue what is commonly known as self-actualization and self-realization. Many of us in the room are children of that generation, products of that generation, so that 70 plus years later from even the greatest generation, with all of the boom and the explosion of technology at our fingertips, we live in a world today as a, as a people today that know no other way of thinking about life other than what's in it for me. How does this work for me? And we're completely untethered now from a generation that ever lived on the face of this earth that could give us any other way of thinking. And at our fingertips and at our disposal all day long are instruments to remind me that the world is literally in my hands. Bruce Ashford wrote about this and its impact even on the life of the church this way when he said, we've learned to live life without any real reference to God. Because of our relative wealth in this country, we tend not to lean on God for material provision. Because of modern medicine, we rely on doctors and pills when our health is fragile. We don't see God as an ultimate healer. Because of modern therapy, we tend to ignore the role that God should play in the right ordering of our hearts and minds and affections. Our historical conditions have encouraged the belief that humans are meant to be captains of their own destinies and sculptors of their own identities according to their own most deeply held authentic desires. He says, consider, for example, the way many people today set forth a project to redesign their lives according to their immediate desire. This might look like a man who decides to follow his dreams by choosing to advance his own career or social status, 
often at the expense of family, friends, even a church and community. Further, this man who has absolutized his career as the way to life will sometimes be willing to sacrifice his own professional integrity and undermine his own personal ethical standards. Or consider an instance in in which a woman might take an affirmational view of her friendships. In this view, her friends exist to affirm her life decisions and they're left to only approve of the decisions that she makes no matter how she makes them, even if in her workplace they lead her to undermine her own ethical standards and desires in order to get what it is she wants. There's no space for anything but affirmation. As opposed, he says, to the biblical view in which friendship isn't affirmational, it's aspirational. It involves friends discouraging foolish and sinful actions. What has all of this individualism gotten us? What has all of the focus on strengthening and building Project Me and my own kingdom really gotten us? We continue to be known as the saddest, most anxious, most worried, most aggressively lonely people on planet Earth. Robert Putnam, he he wrote a book years ago called Bowling Alone, sociologically looking at the demise of civic associations and community commitments in the life of American people from the World War II generation to the modern day. He continued writing after that. And in his most recent research, he talks about how today in the American population, this isn't a, a Christian process, this is a sociological process. In America today, almost 50% of the population claims to have zero to one what he would call confidant. Someone who really knows them. Married and unmarried. Someone who they really feel like knows them. That they can know. A life of true emotional reciprocity. Why he and others will go on to say that loneliness in the age of Project Me might be the greatest pathology of our day. Because you can't build the kingdom of self and have such interdependent, mutual, loving relationships at the same time. Doesn't work like that. And the reality of this individualism and this ideology, it has captivated and captured the hearts of the church. When Project Self and the kingdom of me is at the forefront of our hearts and minds and our needs and our wants are at the center, we become a people together who live by the way of preference. Assuming that our preferences and our diagnosis of what we need most is in agreement with God's understanding of what's most important. We're so arrogant in this, but we live together by means of our own preference. So when you quit being the means to the desire and the fulfillment and the life that I most desperately want and need, I can just move on. When the church ceases to give me and be for me what it is I want it to be and think I need it to be, then I can just go find another place that will. We are as equally captivated and being formed and molded into this pattern as as the people around us. We've just created what we saw last week, a Christianized version of it with a twist of Jesus. Project self that makes us maybe look a little better, act a little nicer, but yet we're equally as lonely. 
equally as unknown, equally driven in heart to build our own kingdom. Friends, we need a more compelling vision, a kingdom vision, and a way forward, a way of counter-formation, counter-forming against this ideology that is captivating our hearts and seeking to shape it and form it at odds with God and his kingdom. Praise God. He's given it to us. Let's just keep reading. Do not be conformed, Paul says in verse 2, to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. The key word there is renewal. That's the key word. Paul uses this word one other time in all of his letters, and it's in the letter he wrote to Titus. In Titus chapter 3, he uses this word when he speaks about how God has saved us and washed us clean by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. See, this transforming process, this counterformation of our hearts that stands at odds against the individualism of our day, the way of Jesus and his kingdom is dependent on the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. The one who breaks through our blindness. The one who helps us see the things we're blind and not being able to see. The one who exposes to us where and how our hearts are still being shaped, informed, and held captive by these patterns and powers. He shines a light on the darkness. He helps us to see. And he shines a light on the glories of Jesus. This transforming, counterforming work is the process of an ongoing dialogue with the Holy Spirit. Asking Him to help expose the things that we're held captive to. Acknowledging that we know all day long and all we're doing, we're being formed. Things are pressing in on us, seeking to shape us in ways and in directions that are counter to His way of life. I know things are pressing me. I know things are forming me. I know things are taking me captive. Even in this moment right now as we're talking, I know that something else is taking my heart captive. Help me see it. Expose it. I'm blind to what I can't see. I don't know. Shine a light on Jesus. His life given as a ransom. His life given, forgiving his enemies, patient, self-centered, self-kingdom-building disciples, washing their feet. Shine the light there on his life being lived, well-lived, for the well-being of others. We need the Holy Spirit moment by moment in the project of counterformation and the renewal of our minds and our souls to make the mercy and love of Jesus visible. He said they'll know. The watching world is going to know that you're mine. Not by how articulate you are. Not by how beautiful your architecture might be. Not by how many books you write. They're going to know you're really mine by the quality and the way that you love one another. 
they're going to know you're really mine. You're telling the truth about me. You're telling the truth about my mercy and the mercies of the Father. You're telling the truth about life in my kingdom. And when they can see the way that those mercies are being reflected in the quality of your love for one another. And we need the renewing work of the Holy Spirit moment by moment to push back against the forming powers and pressures that satisfy and feed that old self and his desire to build that project me and that kingdom of me. To deny those things daily. We need to see. And that takes the renewing work of the Holy Spirit that we might be able together to make the love of Jesus visible. And this is the vision that Paul lays out to the church in Rome. Just listen to it. Just listen. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So he's speaking to the entire church. And he's describing a community of sober-minded humility. Are you want a counter-forming culture in our world today? There is nothing more counter-forming than a people of sober-minded humility. A sober-minded humility that spills out of a heart that is rooted in the mercies of God. A sober-minded humility that's visible and evident in such little things, like even the way we speak and the way we speak about ourselves. All of a sudden, the way we speak about ourselves with one another is absolutely absent and vacant of all the ways we try to polish our, our picture of ourselves to each other. All the comparisons and all the ways we, we try to present ourselves to, to you that would reflect something that's untrue about who we really are. We don't need it anymore. Can you imagine a people characterized by a sober-minded humility? Not only that, but a people who understand themselves as one body with many members. And that the members don't all have the same function. So we, though many, Paul says, are one body in Jesus and individually members of one another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if in service are serving and teaching and teaching, and the one who exhorts in exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads, he does it with zeal, the one who act with acts of mercy, he does it with cheerfulness. So we understand ourselves not just as a family, which is how he's been speaking, but also as a body. And because of this, we don't belong to ourselves. Right, what if we understood and, and really began to exhibit this transforming renewal reality by the mercy of God that we don't belong to ourselves, but we belong to each other? And you don't exist and I don't exist and we're not gifted by God for the process of building up our own kingdom or, or, or forwarding project self, but we exist for one another and are gifted for the good of the body for one another's well-being. And each is necessary. And each is understanding they enter into the reality of the body, of the church, 
with the knowledge of the mercy of God and the grace and the gifting of God for one another. This is the vision that Paul is laying out. To kingdom formation in the way of Jesus, it's always going to push us deeper into the church. If our Christianity, if, if our formation, if it doesn't push us deeper into the church, into lives together like this, then it's not the way of Jesus. It's just an exercise in strengthening project self. So now Paul's going to get really rapid with this vision, right? He's going to lay it out, like 25, just lay it out. Let our love be genuine. This is a vision of a people by the mercies of God who live together without pretense and posturing and comparison and competition, but genuineness. Abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what is good. There's a commitment together to help one another keep from falling in love with this present world like Demas. Right, as I was reading it, I kept thinking about that, that spot in Hebrews chapter 10 where the writer says, let us, as God's people, by the mercies of God, consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. And then I learned this week that stir up, right there in Hebrews chapter 10, the word behind that, it means irritating agitation. <laughs> Nobody's translated it that way in your Bible. But he says, let us consider. So you've got to set your focus, your intention upon it. So not thinking about ourselves now. We're not thinking about how you further my project of my kingdom. But I'm thinking about you and your well-being. And I'm considering how God has graced me to irritate you. Into abhorring what is evil. Into seeing clearly that which has captivated your heart together to trust the Holy Spirit to help us to see where we're blind and even though it's irritating to help one another to see it love one another with brotherly affection outdo one another in showing honor can you imagine that don't be slothful in zeal be fervent in spirit serve the Lord rejoice in hope be patient in tribulation be constant in prayer contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality Right again, this love born out of the mercies of God, empowered by the present work of the Holy Spirit, is visible. But when our focus is entirely upon ourselves, how we go about building our own kingdoms and pursuing our life and deepest desires, and you become a means to that end, this can't happen. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Could you imagine what the last three years in this country could look like if this is what God's people were marked by? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. But you can't rejoice with your brother and sister when you feel like you're constantly comparing yourself to them and in competition with them. That's what Project Self does. It robs us of this vision. Live in harmony with one another. Right? That's absence of the air and the environment of skepticism and scrutiny. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. 
vision of a people by the mercies of God who were far more concerned with the logs in our own eyes. Desperate for the Holy Spirit to help us see that. Not so preoccupied with the specks that I can see in yours. This is the humility. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I want to talk about that, but we don't have time. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That includes whatever violence you think has been done to your reputation in the building of your own kingdom. It's vainglory that goes after trying to undo the damage that's caused to our reputation by, by things that happen to us and things that people say. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. But do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is a vision. Does anybody in here want that? Let me give you a secret. It's not much of a secret, but we can't program ourselves into that. Right? No church on the face of this earth can program this vision with people. It's not born by strategy. It's not born by program. It's not born by books. It's not born by podcasts. It's not born out of any of those things. The way forward into this kingdom vision for God's people, this way of counter-formation against the pressures and powers of individualism is by the transforming, renewing work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 2. The ongoing moment-by-moment humbling of the Holy Spirit and the sober judgment that comes from His exposure. The honesty that comes from the Holy Spirit helping us to think about ourselves with sober-mindedness. See, the ideology of individualism can't thrive in the environment of spirit-empowered humility and honesty. And at the same time, no church can thrive once it's been affected and taken captive by the spirit of individualism. But that individualism can't thrive where there is a commitment to spirit-empowered humility and honesty. What if God made us the most honest place in this city? Not the most honest church, the most honest place. Honest with Jesus, honest with ourselves, honest with one another. What if he made us so honest that sinners felt safe to come and to allow the Holy Spirit to chisel their hearts and their souls into who he was shaping them to be? Felt free and safe for the mercies of God to make them who God is making them rather than feeling the Immediate scrutiny for not already being something that maybe they felt like they were supposed to be or yet meeting some perceived expectation that the church might put on them. Turn real quick to the right of your Bible. 
1 John. There's a picture of this. There's a picture of this humility and honesty born of the Holy Spirit in action. The way forward towards the vision of Romans chapter 12. We'll be real quick, I promise. Maybe not, I don't know. Be real quick. Listen, John is dealing with a church that has been captivated by an ideology and a pretension of its day and is living life with the twist of Jesus. In verse 6, he says, if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie. Right? If we say we're his and he is ours, and yet we spend our lives toiling on project me and the building of my own kingdom, then I'm lying about Jesus. That's what he's saying. We're lying about the truth of the mercies of God. We're lying about life with Jesus in his kingdom. And then John says this in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Here is the street-level, right-foot, left-foot picture of spirit-born humility and honesty in action. God, through John, is giving us an invitation to something better and deeper than the individualism of our day holds out. He's inviting us into the light where we not only find mercy and cleansing, but now we're enabled to live and express that mercies in what John calls fellowship, in what Paul laid out in Romans 12. This is where Romans 12 lives. This is where Romans 12 begins to unfold. It's ours to have by the mercy of God, but it's only found in the light of spirit-born honesty and humility. It's an invitation to walk. Not stand, not sit, but walk. One foot after the other foot, day by day, honest with Jesus and honest with one another. To walk in an ongoing dialogue with Jesus by his spirit to help us moment by moment to see ourselves honestly and clearly. To see ourselves in such a way that we see all the ways that we're trying to appear to be something that we're not. And it's not just a command. It's an invitation. Better yet, it's a craving. It becomes a desire and a longing to want to see what we can't see. To want our hearts exposed. To want to recognize moment by moment the things that have taken our heart captive. We invite it. We desire it. Holy Spirit, show me when I walk into this room, into this conversation, where you're already at work. I'm not walking into any situation where God isn't already present and isn't already at work. How arrogant to think that I can walk into it. Thinking that I'm going to come there and I've got the answer and I've got the way. Help me to see where you're already at work in this situation. Help me to see where my heart, even walking in here, has been taken captive by this desire in this moment to either be right or to win or to get my way or to avoid this difficulty or to avoid that so I can go back to the comfort that I want. Help me to see what I can't see. Where you're already at work. It's painful. But it's free. Holy Spirit, make that thing in me like 
like vomit. I don't want to go back to it. It's disgusting. I don't want it anymore, right? But the mercy of God in Christ and the renewing work of his spirit, he's opened up a way for us to live free and honest and capable of truly growing. And it comes by walking in the light together. Romans 12 is there in the light. The honesty and the humility, it enables us to discover one another at a deeper level. It frees us in the light from all the religious games we play. And I'm sure every culture around the world in the church has their own versions, but boy, we have got some really jacked up religious games. We've allowed ourselves and this spirit of individualism that has captivated even the church to allow each of us to draw the boundaries around our games and around our relationships and the rules that we're supposed to play in however we want. Those things don't exist in the light. The light is not a support group. It's not a therapy session. It's the place where the blood of Jesus is the foundation. As the Holy Spirit helps us to see the blindness, the darkness, the captivity, even in our own hearts, those things that grieve us the most, those things we regret the deepest, those things that haunt us in the darkest parts of our heart. He reminds us there in that light, what he brings into the light are the very things he died to cleanse. And every time, moment by moment, the Holy Spirit helps to expose, helps us to see it's depriving that lie, that pretension of the oxygen that it needs to breathe in our hearts. Walking in the light is the way of counterformation. It's where the kingdom vision of Romans 12 lives. It's how you and I die daily to the project of building our own kingdom. It's how we die daily to the web of lies that we spin to keep the kingdom going. This, my friends, is Christianity as Jesus meant it to be. It's what his invitation is to. You want it. Let's go after it. Let's enjoy it. Let's reflect it. Let's infect our city with it. Let's get in on it. It's free. It's light. It's where he is. Let me pray for us this morning as we prepare to respond to God's word. Father, I can't even see most of the time where my heart is, is driven to build my own reputation, my own kingdom based on my own sense of what I need and what I want and what will make me the happiest. And I go into relationships and conversations and situations with that agenda and that blueprint. I can't even see it. Lord, help us to see the craving in us for the light that together we consider how we side by side and the mercies that you have shown us in your son walk together in the light 
dying daily to our own project self. That we, by your grace and the empowerment of your spirit, would reflect to a watching world your mercies and your glories in our love. We ask that you would do that this morning in Jesus' good name. Amen. We're going to give you now a moment to just consider God's word, to reflect on God's word. And then for those who have believed upon Jesus, repentance and faith have seen him and now know him as king, as savior, have tasted the goodness of God's mercy to you in Jesus. You're going to be invited in a moment to come forward, remembering his life, his death, his resurrection in your place for your sin taking a piece of bread, dipping it in that cup, remembering and celebrating that Jesus broke the power of the kingdom of self. That in his body on the cross, he paid the debt for every self-centered motive, word, and action that you and I prioritize over a life of walking in the light. On that cross and in his resurrection, he purchased the power for you and I to live free together to be living sacrifices, reflections of him and his mercy. You take that bread and you dip it in that cup. You are remembering and celebrating that his resurrection is guaranteed a day is going to come when that great conflict in our heart and in our lives between the advancement of our kingdom and the establishment of his kingdom is finally going to come to an end. The conflict will be done. And we get him and the fullness of his kingdom forever. But until then, as we take that bread and we dip it in that cup, by the mercies of God, we are reminded of the appeal to resist the conforming power of this world's pull to building our own kingdom by the transforming and renewing power of his spirit, his light with one another. Let me pray for us again and give you a moment. Father, settle in our hearts right now. Whatever distraction, whatever thing we think is more important right now than allowing you to speak. Settle our hearts. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.